0: Well, I just got back from Banff, where I attended the TED Summit, and I brought a portable recording device to the conference on the odd chance that I might find someone worth talking to who wanted to record a podcast. Needless to say, there were many people worth talking to, but not much time to sit down and do a podcast. But I did record one conversation with the philosopher Dan Dennett, who probably needs no introduction here. As many of you know, Dan and I have been brothers in arms for many years along with Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens, as the so-called New Atheists, or the Four Horsemen after a video by that name that we recorded in Hitch's apartment some years back. Dan and I once debated together on the same team, along with Hitch, at the Ciudad de las Ideas conference in Mexico, where we were pitted against Dinesh D'Souza and Rabbi Shmuley Botiak and Robert Wright, I believe, and Nassim Taleb got in there somehow. I hope it doesn't seem too self serving or contemptuous of our opponents to say that we came out none the worse for wear on that occasion. And needless to say, that video is online for all to see until the end of the world. But as many of you know, Dan and I had a very barbed exchange on the topic of free will some years later, and that was a little over two years ago, and we never resolved it. I came out with my short book on free will, and Dan reviewed it, and then I responded to his review. And the matter was left there in a way that no one found satisfying, least of all our readers. There really was an outpouring of dismay over the tone that we took with each other, and I must say that was totally understandable. I want to begin by reading the, the first few paragraphs of my response to Dan's review, which includes a quotation from him, so you can hear how vexed and vexing things got. And if you're interested, you can read the whole exchange on my blog. In fact, when I post this podcast on my website, I'll provide the relevant links. So this is near the beginning of my response, written as a letter to Dan. I want to begin by reminding our readers and myself that exchanges like this aren't necessarily pointless. Perhaps you need no encouragement on that front, but I'm afraid I do. In recent years, I've spent so much time debating scientists, philosophers, and other scholars that I've begun to doubt whether any smart person retains the ability to change his mind. This is one of the great scandals of intellectual life. The virtues of rational discourse are everywhere espoused, and yet witnessing someone relinquish a cherished opinion in real time is about as common as seeing a supernova explode overhead. The perpetual stalemate one encounters in public debates is annoying because it is so clearly the product of motivated reasoning, self-deception, and other failures of rationality. And yet we've grown to expect it on every topic, no matter how intelligent and well-intentioned the participants. I hope you and I don't give our readers further cause for cynicism on this front. Unfortunately, your review of my book doesn't offer many reasons for optimism. It is a strange document, avuncular in places, but more generally sneering. I think it fair to say that one could watch an entire season of Downton Abbey on Ritalin and not detect a finer note of condescension than you manage for 20 pages running. And now I have a quotation from Dan's review here. This is Dan. I'm not being disingenuous when I say this museum of mistakes is valuable. I am grateful to Harris for saying so boldly and clearly what less outgoing scientists are thinking but keeping to themselves. I have always suspected that many who hold this hard, determinist view are making these mistakes. But we mustn't put words in people's mouths. And now Harris has done us a great service by articulating the points explicitly. And the chorus of approval he's received from scientists goes a long way to confirming that they have been making these mistakes all along. Wolfgang Pauli's famous dismissal of another physicist's work as, quote, not even wrong, reminds us of the value of crystallizing an ambient cloud of hunches into something that can be shown to be wrong. Correcting widespread misunderstanding is usually the work of many hands, and Harris has made a significant contribution. End quote. So this is back to me. I say, I hope you will recognize that your beloved Rappaport's rules have failed you here. As an aside, I should say, for those of you who are not familiar with them, these rules come from Anatole Rappaport, the mathematician, game theorist, and, and social scientist, and Dan has been a champion of these rules of argumentation for years, and they are, one, attempt to re-express your target's position so clearly, vividly, and fairly that your target says, thanks, I wish I thought of putting it that way. Two, list any points of agreement, especially if they are not matters of general or widespread agreement. Three, mention anything you have learned from your target. Four only then are you permitted to say so much as a word of rebuttal or criticism. So those are the rules, and Dan has often said that he aspires to follow them when criticizing another person's point of view. So back to my text. I hope you will recognize that your beloved Rappaport's rules have failed you here. If you have decided according to the rule to first mention something positive about the target of your criticism, It will not do to say that you admire him for the enormity of his errors and the recklessness with which he clings to them despite the sterling example you've set in your own work. Yes, you may assert, quote, I am not being disingenuous when I say this museum of mistakes is valuable, end quote. But you are, in fact, being disingenuous. If that isn't clear, permit me to spell it out just this once. You are asking the word valuable to pass as a token of praise, however faint. But according to you, my book is, quote, valuable, for reasons that I should find embarrassing. If I valued it as you do, I should rue the day I wrote it, as you would had you brought such value into the world. And it would be disingenuous of me not to notice how your prickliness and preening appears. You write as one protecting his academic turf. Behind and between almost every word of your essay, like some toxic background radiation, one detects an explosion of professorial vanity. End quote. So that's how snide things got, and I must say that this is really a problem with writing rather than having a face-to-face encounter. If any of you have ever had the brilliant idea of writing a long letter or email to a friend to sort out some relationship crisis rather than just have a conversation, you've probably discovered how haywire things can go through an exchange of texts. And the same can be true for intellectual debates among philosophers and scientists. And it's especially likely to happen if either or both of the people involved are writers who get attached to their writerly maneuvers. I remember writing that quip about Downton Abbey, and it made me laugh at the time. I knew it would make many readers laugh, and so I kept it in. But lines like that just amplify the damage done. So, as I told Dan at the end of our podcast, I very much regret the tone I took in this exchange, and I'm very happy we got a chance to have a face-to-face conversation and sort things out. I don't think we resolved all the philosophical issues, but we spoke for nearly two hours, but there were several important topics that never came up. As you'll hear, we were speaking in a bar using a single microphone, and this was at the end of a long day of conferencing, so this isn't us at our most polished or prepared but I thought it was a very good conversation, I think those of you who are interested in the problem of free will and its connection to ethics will find it useful. I still think there's some sense in which Dan and I are talking past one another. The nature of our remaining disagreement never became perfectly clear to me. So perhaps you guys can figure it out. And now I give you Dan Dennett, in a bar overlooking the Canadian Rockies. So I'm here with Dan Dennett at the TED Summit in Banff, and we have stolen away from the main session, and we are in a bar and about to have a conversation about the misadventure we had in discussing free will online in a series of articles and blog posts. I mean, you and I are part of a community and you know, a pretty visible part of a community that prides itself on being willing to change its opinions and views more or less in real time under pressure from better arguments and better data. And I think I said in my article in, re- in response to your review of my book, Free Will, that, that this is a very rare occurrence. I mean, to see someone relinquish his cherished opinion more or less on the spot under pressure from a, an interlocutor that's about as rare as seeing a supernova overhead. And it really shouldn't be because there's there's nothing that tokens intellectual honesty more than a willingness to step away from one's views once they are shown to be an error. And I'm not saying we're necessarily going to get there in this conversation about free will, but there was something that went awry in our exchange in our written exchanges, you know, tonally, and neither of us felt good about the result. and And so again, we're you know, we'll talk about free will as well. but this I, I think this conversation is proceeding along two levels where there's a the thing we're talking about philosophically, which is free will, but then there's just the, the way in which I want us to both be sensitive to getting hijacked into unproductive lines that make it, make it needlessly hard to talk about the, what, what is just a in purely intellectual philosophical matter. And one of great interest, surprisingly great interest to our audiences. I mean, I, you know, there's no topic that I've touched that has surprised me more in the in the degree to which people find it completely captivating to think about. And I, I know you and I both think it's a very consequential topic. It's unlike many topics in philosophy. This one really does meet ethics and public policy in a way that is important. So one thing you all should know in listening to this is that we have one microphone, perhaps uh, this is a good thing because we really can't interrupt each other and we're just going to pass this microphone back and forth and I now give you Dan Dennett.
1: Um, thanks Sam this is a beautiful setting if we can't agree on some things here we shouldn't be in this business that's right, that's right. I want to go back one step further uh, uh, in how this got started um, you sent me the manuscript of your book free will and asked me for my advice and I didn't have time to read it I, I hmm. just told you no I'm sorry I, can't, I don't have time and then when the book came out I read it and said, oh I wish you'd I forgot that we'd had that experience. I, said, I wish you'd showed it to me because I think you made some big mistakes here and I would love to have tried to talk you out of them, too late um, and then we, time passed and then we had the, uh, you said you wanted me still to say what, what I thought the mistakes were and that's when I wrote my piece for your, for your blog and for Naturalism and uh, uh, it certainly struck you wrong and I guess I'd regret uh, a few uh, bits of tone there but I think Everything I said there is defensible. And in particular, uh, I did use Rappaport's rules, uh, contrary to what you say. If you look at the first paragraph of my piece, I I applaud the book for doing a wonderful, clear job of setting out a position which I largely agreed with. And then I said you went off the rails a little later. So uh, I did try to articulate your view, and I, I haven't heard you complain about that articulation of your view, and uh, And I said what we agree about, and I even said w- what I've learned from that book, so I did follow Rappaport's rules uh, quite well, but we can we can just set that aside if you want, and get down to the to, to, to what remains of the issue. One thing in particular, which uh, I know it came off awfully uh, preachy, but I really think it was most unwise of you to uh, declare that my position sounded like religion, sounded you know sounded like theology, you have to know that you're insulting me. And that was a pretty deliberate insult, and that was in the book. And I thought, come on, Sam. Uh, so you can't expect kid gloves. If you're going to call me a theologian, then I'm going to call you on it and say, as I said, I tell my students, one of you, by a Apparently, senior, uh, you know, an author worth reading looks that bad. Maybe you've misinterpreted it. And, of course, the main point of my essay was, yes, you you have misconstrued my brand of compatibilism. You've got a, a sort of a caricatured version of it. And, in fact, as I say late in the piece, you're a, you are a compatibilist in all that name. You and I agree on so many things. You agree with me that determinism and moral responsibility are compatible. You agree that a system of, of law, including punishment and justified punishment, is compatible with determinism. That's, we're, we're just that close to compatibilism. I've actually toyed with the idea, in part, uh, provoked by you and and some others, uh, Jerry Coyne and others, to say, all right, I don't want to fight over who gets to define the term free will. As I see it, there are two completely intention themes out there about what free will is. One is that it's incompatible with determinism, and the other is that it's the basis of moral responsibility. I think it's the second one that's the important one. That's the variety of free will worth wanting. And I think the other one's a throwaway. And I agree with you. Indeterminist free will, libertarian free will is a philosopher's fantasy. It's, it is not worth it, it is just, it's just a, a fantasy. Uh, so we agree on so much. We have no uh, love for libertarian uh, indeterminism, for agent causation, for all of that metaphysical gobbledygook. We're both good naturalists. Mm. And we both agree that the truths of neuroscience and the truths of physics, physics doesn't have much to do with it, actually, are compatible with most of our understanding, our everyday understanding of responsibility, taking responsibility, uh, being morally responsible enough to be held to our word. I mean, you and I both agree that you are competent to sign a contract. Me too. Well, you know, if you go and sign a, 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 a deed or a, or a mortgage, very often if it's notarized, the notary public will say, are you signing this of your own free will? And I recently did. I said, yeah, I am. That's the sense of free will that I think is important. I have it. There are a lot of people that don't have that free will, and it has nothing to do with indeterminism. It has to do with their being disabled in some way. They don't have they don't have a well running nervous system, which you need if you're going to be a responsible agent. I
0: think you agree with all of that. So uh, I, I certainly agree with most of that. I think there are some interesting points of disagreement on the moral responsibility issue, which, which we should talk about, and, and, I, and I think that could be very interesting for listeners to, to, for us to unpack those differences. I, I am, needless to say, very uncomfortable with the idea that I have misrepresented your view, and if I did that in my book, I certainly want to correct that here, so we should clearly state what your view is at, at a certain point here. But I want to step back for a second before we dive into the details of the philosophy of free will. What I was aware of doing in my book, Free Will, and again, I, I would recommend that our listeners just go back and... You don't you don't actually have to read my book, but you can read Dan's review of it on my blog and you can read my response, which is entitled The Marionette's Lament, I believe. Then you can see the the bad blood that was generated there. And I don't know if, Dan, if you're aware of this, you don't squander as much of your time on social media or in your inbox, but... I heard from so many of our mutual readers that they were just despairing of that contretemps between us. It was like you know mom and dad fighting, and it was totally unpleasant. The thing that I really regret, which you regret that you didn't get a chance to read my book before I published it, which yeah, that would have been a nice thing for both of us. But what I regret is when you, when you told me that you were planning to write a, a review of it, I kept urging you, and ultimately, you know, badgering you to not do that and have a discussion with me because I knew what was going to happen, at least from my point of view, is that you would hit me with this ten thousand word volley, which, at in many, you know, a dozen points or more. I would feel you had misconstrued me or gone off the rails, and there would be no chance to respond to those. And to respond in a further 10,000 word volley in a piecemeal way would just lead to this exchange that was very boring to to read and yielded a much bigger sense of disagreement than was necessary, right? So so if I have to spend 90% of my energy taking your words out of my mouth, then this thing begins to look purely adversarial. So what I, one thing I've been struggling for in my professional life is a way of having conversations like this, even ones where there's much less goodwill than you and I have for one another, because you and I are, are friends and we're on the same side of most of these debates. And so we should be able to have this kind of conversation in a way that's productive. But I, I've been engaging people who you know, think I'm a racist bigot as, as a starting point and want And I, I want to find ways of having conversations in real time where you can be as... Nimble as possible in diffusing unnecessary conflict or misunderstanding, and, and writing is an especially bad way to do that. Certainly, writing the ten thousand word New York Review of Books piece that then someone has to react to in a le- in an angry letter, you know. So, in any case, I wish we'd had that conversation, but we're having it now, and this is instructive in its in its own way. Feel free to react to that, but I, I guess I want you to also. Express what compatibilism means to you. And if you recall the way in which I got that wrong, feel free to say that, but I, I, I'll then react to your version of compatibilism.
1: Well, um, my view of compatibilism is pretty much what I just said and you were nodding. And you were not considering that a serious view about free will, although you were actually almost all of it you were agreeing with. and And you also, I think, made this uh, serious strategic or tactical error of of uh, saying this is like theology. It smells of theology. Well, as soon as you said that, I thought, well, you, you just don't understand what compatibilism is. It's the opposite of theology. It's an uh, attempt to look at what matters, to look at the terms and their meanings, and to recognize that Sometimes ancient ideology uh, gets in the way of clear thinking so that you can't just trust tradition. If you trusted tradition and the everyday meanings of words, we would have to say all sorts of silly things. We've learned. Uh, In fact, one of the abiding themes in my work is there are these tactical or diplomatic choice points you can say, Uh, oh consciousness exists it just isn't what you think it is or you can say no consciousness doesn't exist well if you've got one view of consciousness if it's this mysterious magical uh, ultimately insoluble problem then I agree consciousness in that sense doesn't exist but there's another sense much more presentable I think which of course consciousness exists it just isn't what you think it is that was a central theme in Elbow Room, with regard to free will, and in Consciousness Explained, with regard to consciousness. My, my view, my tactic, and notice, those two views, they look as if they're doctrinally opposed. They're not. They're two different ways of dealing with the same issue. Does free will really exist? Well, if, if free will means what Dennett says it means, yes. And you agree? If it means what some people
0: think, then the answer is no. Yeah, I understand that, but I would put to you the question: there is a difference between explaining something and changing the subject. So this is my gripe about compatibilism, and this is this is something we'll get into. So, I, but I, I assume you will admit there, that there is a difference between purifying a real phenomenon of its folk psychological baggage, which I think this is what you think compatibilism is doing, and actually failing to interact with some core features that are just inelimitable from the concept itself.
1: Let me surprise you by saying I don't think there's a sharp line between those two, and I think that's quite obvious, that whether I'm changing the subject, I'm so used to that retort, about any line along right. this. So, no, I think that's that's just a debater's point. We should just set that aside. Just saying you're just changing the subject is a way of as we're declaring a whole manifold, a whole variety spectrum of clarificatory views, which you're not accepting because you're clinging to some core part of what free will is. You want to claim that free, Free will, the core of free will, is its, is its denial of determinism. And I've made a career saying that's not the core. In fact, let me try, let me try a, a new line on you. Because I've been thinking, why, why doesn't he see this the way I see it? And I think that the big source, the likely big source of confusion about this is that when people think about freedom... In the context of free will, they're ignoring a very good and legitimate notion of freedom, which is basically the engineering notion of freedom. When you talk about degrees of freedom, uh, my arms, you know, my wrist and my shoulder and my elbow—those joints—that there's there's three degrees of freedom right there. And in control theory, it's all about how you control the degrees of freedom. And if we look around the world, we can see that. Some things have basically no degrees of freedom, that rock over there, and some things, like you and me, have uncountably many degrees of freedom because of the versatility of our minds, the capacity that we are. We can be moved by reasons on any topic at all. This gives us a complexity from the point of view of control theory which is completely absent in any other creature. And that kind of freedom is actually, I claim, at the heart of our understanding of free will, because it's that complexity, which is not just complexity, but it's the competence to control that complexity. That's what free will is. What you want, if you've got free will, is the capacity, and it'll never be perfect, to respond to the circumstances with all the degrees of freedom you need to do what you think would be really the right thing to do. You may not always do the right thing, Let's take a dead simple case. Imagine writing a chess program, which, um, stupidly, it was written wrong so that the king could only move forward or back or left or right, (laughs) like a rook, and it could not move diagonally. And this was somehow hidden in it, so that it just never even considered moves, diagonal moves by the king. Completely disabled chess program. It's missing a very important degree (laughs) of freedom, which it should... Have and be able to control and recognize when to use and so forth. What you want, I mean, let me ask you a question about what would be ideal from the point of view of responsibility. What does an ideal responsible agent have? Uh, It's not mainly true beliefs, a well-ordered set of desires, um, the... uh, cognitive adroitness to to change one's attention, to change one's mind, to be moved by reasons, the capacity to listen to reasons, the capacity for some self-control. These things all come in degrees, but our model of a responsible adult, someone you would trust, someone you would make a promise to, or you would accept a promise from, is somebody with all those degrees of freedom and control of them. Now, What removes freedom from somebody is if either the degrees of freedom don't exist, they're blocked mechanically, or some other agent has usurped them and has taken over control. A marionette and a puppeteer. And so I think that our model of a free agent says nothing at all about indeterminism. We can distinguish free agents from unfree agents in a deterministic world or in an indeterministic world. Determinism and indeterminism make no difference to that categorization, and it's that categorization which makes the moral difference.
0: So, yeah, I agree with almost all of that. I I just need to put a few more pieces in play here. I think there is an important difference Nevertheless, I I, I agree that there is no bright line between changing the subject and actually purifying a concept of illusions and and actually explaining something scientifically about the world. But in this case, the durability of free will as a problem for philosophers and now scientists is based on people's first-person experience of something they think they have. People feel like they are the authors of their thoughts and intentions and actions and so there's a there's a first person description of this problem and there's a third person description of this problem and i think if we bounce between the two without knowing that we're bouncing between the two we are are losing sight of of important details so people feel that they have libertarian free will and when i when i get emails from people who are psychologically destabilized by my argument that free will doesn't exist these are people who feel like something integral to their psychological life and well-being is being put in jeopardy. And I I can say this from from both sides because I know what it's like to feel that that I could have done otherwise. So let me just, for for listeners who aren't totally up to speed here, libertarian free will is this, is anchored to this notion of, I could have done otherwise. So if, if we rewound the universe to precisely as it was a few moments ago, I could complete this this sentence differently than I did. You know, whether you throw indeterminism or determinism or or some combination thereof, there is no scientific rationale for that claim. If If you rewound the universe to precisely its prior state with all relevant variables intact, whether deterministic or indeterministic, these words would come out of my mouth in exactly the same order and there's, there, would, there would be no change. I would, I would speak this sentence a trillion times in, the, in a row with its, with its errors, with its glitches. So people feel that if they rewound the movie of their lives, they could do differently in each moment. And that feeling is the thing that is what people find so interesting about this, this notion that free will doesn't exist because it, it is so counterintuitive psychologically. Now I can tell you that I no longer feel that. Subjectively, my experience of myself I'm aware of the fact that it is a subjective mystery to me how these words come out of my mouth. It's like, I'm hearing these words as you're hearing these words, right? I'm thinking out loud right now. I haven't thought this thought before I thought it, right? It's just coming. And I am subjectively aware of the fact that this is all coming out of the darkness of my unconscious mind, in some sense, there's the sphere of my mind that is that is illuminated by consciousness, for for lack of a better word, and I can be subjectively identified with it. But then there's all the stuff that is simply just arriving, appearing in consciousness, the contents of consciousness, which I can't notice until I notice them, and I can't think the thought before I think it. And my direct experience is compatible with. A purely deterministic world, right now most people's isn't, or they don't think it is, and so that's where when when I, when you change the subject. So the, the analogy I used in my my article that responded to your review, which I still think captures it for me, I'll just I'll just pitch it to you once more, is the notion of Atlantis. So people are infatuated with this idea of Atlantis. I say actually Atlantis doesn't exist. It's a myth. There's nothing in the world that answers to the name of Atlantis there was no underwater kingdom with advanced technology and all the rest. And whoever it was, Plato, was confused on this topic or just spinning a spinning yarn. And you, compatibilism, uh, your variant and perhaps every variant, takes another approach. It says, no, no, actually, there is something that conserves much of what people are concerned with about Atlantis. And in fact, it may be the historical and geographical antecedent to the first stirrings of this idea of Atlantis. And there's this island of Sicily, the biggest island in the Mediterranean, which answers to much of what people care about with Atlantis. And I say, well, but actually what people really care about is the underwater kingdom with the advanced technology. And that is a fiction. So you and I are going to agree about Sicily. 99% of our truth claims about Sicily are going to converge but I'm saying the whole reason why we're talking about Atlantis in the first place is there's this other piece that people are attached to, which by you purifying the subject, you're actually just no longer interacting with that subjective piece.
1: Yeah, that's, um, that's well put. I, I think the uh, analogy is, uh, let's instructive. I don't think it's entirely fair, but let's leave it at that. Um, uh, the... Uh, your position is that you can see very clearly that what people really care about is that free will should be something sort of magical. And you're right. A lot of people, that's what they, if you don't think free will is magical, then you don't believe in free will. And that's what I confront and say, well, I got something which isn't magical, which is perfectly consistent with naturalism, and gives us moral responsibility, justification for our, the way we treat each other, the distinctions that matter to us, like who, who do we hold responsible and who don't, who do we excuse because they don't have free will. It gives us all of the landmarks of our daily lives and explains why these are what matters. And indeed, though, if, if the mystery, if the magic is that important to people, I agree with you, it doesn't, that magic doesn't exist and, and if that's, if we're going to tie free will to that, then, then I would say, no, free will doesn't exist. Now you said something very interesting, you said that um, the reason people believe in this is because they, they feel it, they, or they think they do, they sort of intuit they could have done something different in exactly the same situation. I agree with you that they that's what they think. But I don't think that it is a forlorn task to show them that that's not really what they should think about this, about the very feelings they have. Their sense that they are, as Kant says, acting under the idea of freedom. That's right. They are. And that's the only way an agent can be. This is a fairly deep point that uh, an agent has to consider some things fixed and some things not fixed. You can't decide. Otherwise, the whole setting of decision-making depends on there being that kind of freedom. And so it's no wonder, in a way, that people who are impressed with that, decide that what what they experience is a sense of utter freedom. They don't need utter freedom. What they need and have, can have is the sense that in many very similar circumstances, c- circumstances which differed maybe only in a few atoms, they would have made another decision. And and that has, n- as soon as you allow any tiny change in the bat- when you rewind the tape, the whole business about determinism falls out of the picture. And that's why, in in uh, uh, actually several places, I've gone to considerable length, probably too long, to trot out examples where we have a decision maker, which is in, in a demonstrably de- a deterministic world. It's playing chess and it loses the game and its designer says, well, it could have castled. What do you mean it could have castled? What the designer means is it was just the luck of the draw. A chess program, like any complicated program, is going to consult a random number generator or a pseudo-random number generator at various points. And this time it chose wrong However, it chose wrong because when it got a number from the pseudo-random number generator, it got a one rather than a zero. Flip a single bit and it would have made the other choice. In other words, it's not a design flaw. um, uh, An agent could be, as it were, impeccably designed. You couldn't improve the design of the agent. So that's what justifies saying yeah it could have done otherwise half the time or more it would have done otherwise. this is just bad luck on this occasion. normally, it would have done otherwise
0: so I agree with all that I, I think you 're not acknowledging, however, how seditious that those facts are how how to the degree to which they undermine people 's felt sense of their own personhood so if you tell me that but for a single charge at a synapse, I would have decided I didn't want to have this conversation with you, or I wouldn't have proposed to my wife, right? And my entire life would be different. Acknowledging the the underlying neurophysiology of, of all of those choice points and how tiny a difference can be that makes the crucial difference, that suddenly brings back the marionette strings. Now, no one's holding the strings. The universe is holding the strings. But that is not what people feel themselves to be. This this feeling that it, if you had had just one mouthful more of lunch, it's something very different, you would make a, a radically different decision six hours from now than you are going to make. That is a life that no one, virtually no one, feels they're living.
1: Oh, this is going in good, in good directions. I think you're... Uh, largely right and and exactly wrong in in what you just said. Um, I think you're right that this is a subversive idea to many people. They're so used to the idea that unless they're completely, absolutely undetermined, uh, then they don't have free will. Now, the trouble with that is, if you look closely at that idea, you see, if they were absolute undetermined, that wouldn't give them free will either. <laughs> so so they're, they're, that's a red herring. So let's look at what does matter. Um, it's interesting that you say that, that um, uh, if, if I thought that you know, some tiny atomic change would have altered the course of you know, some big important life decision, uh, let's look closely at that. Because uh, what I think we should say is it is indeed true that there are times when a decision is a real toss-up. When you've thought about it, thought about it, thought about it, you're going to have to act pretty soon, and you just can't make up your mind. In cases like that, and it may be something that's morally very important, the idea that when you do make the decision, Had the few atoms been slightly different, you would have made the other decision. I don't find that uh, upsetting at all. Because that's one of those situations. And it doesn't mean that when the evidence and the reasons are preponderantly on one side, uh, uh, no, then you'd, you'd have to make a very large change in the world for a different decision to come out. sometimes uh, the the indeterminists, the libertarians in fact, it's a sort of signature of a lot of their views uh, say that um, there has to be an absolutely undetermined choice of some importance, that's somewhere in the causal chain of your life um, uh, for your action to be uh, uh, responsible. Now, thus I I had long uh, thrust into the into their faces the example of luther who says i can do no other when he he's he's not ducking responsibility he's saying believe me you know it wasn't had the light been different or the wind not been blowing i would have no he's saying i was determined to do this and yet he's not saying it's not a free decision they some of them amazingly to me fall for the bait and say, oh, well, that's only because it, it must have been the case that somewhere in Luther's life there was a moment, it might have been in his childhood, when there were two paths, A and B, and he chose A, which led to him putting, nailing the theses on the door, and at that moment it was absolutely undetermined that he choose A. I think that's the craziest fantasy uh, imaginable. It doesn't depend on that. Um, So I agree with you that when we think about how chance, luck, enters into our lives, that can be very unsettling. And we should not hide from the fact that there are times when it's a toss-up. And we may rejoice in the decision we make, or we may bitterly regret it. And the fact that we couldn't do that—it was not in our control. It's maybe it's a tragic fact, but it's not a fact which disables us for responsibility. You're playing chess to take a deliberately trivial. Case, you considering two possible moves. For the life of you, you can't see what the better one is. You sort of mentally flip a coin. You don't know. Works out great. You said, "Yeah, that's right. That's what I." You're very likely to retrospectively decorate that with the claim that that's what you determined. Nah, you're kidding yourself. You're just taking responsibility. For a little bit of lucky random coin flip in your decision process. That does not, in fact, not only does that not disable you for free will, I think an important human point about free will is that free responsible agents recognize that when they act, they're going to be held responsible whether or not they are in complete control of the, and they can't be in complete control of the decision-making that goes to making up their minds.
0: Well, uh, now I think we're getting into some very interesting territory where we might actually disagree because I think perhaps your notion of moral responsibility is something that I don't agree with. I think I can do a kind of compatibilist maneuver on moral responsibility and get most of what we want out of it. But I think something changes with my view of free will but I want to unpack one, one point you made earlier that might have blown by people too quickly. The reason why indeterminism doesn't give you freedom is that if you, if you made a choice that was truly not determined by your past conditioning, your past attitudes, it would be the, precisely the occasion where you would say, I don't know what came over me. That wasn't, it wouldn't be representative of who you've been up until that moment. So it has to be in part of the causal stream that you recognize to be, you know, lawfully you in each moment. But I I want to ask you one question before I talk about why I think it might all be a matter of luck all the way down and that moral responsibility is something we have to redefine in the way that you are eager to redefine free will. I want to ask you this notion that the tiny micro-adjustment in the universe only really spells the difference in cases where it's a decision that could go either way, that it was 50-50 anyway, and you just, you know, you flipped a bit and you it wasn't a a diversion of that great consequence because it was not something that you were fully committed to. But I think there probably are many actions, maybe decisions are the wrong category, but certainly actions where the difference between a life-changing action and not is just a matter of a tiny piece of real estate in the brain being otherwise. So, The difference between thinking something and saying it out loud to the person you're thinking it about or the difference between sending that angry email you wrote to your boss or to your best friend and just deciding to scrap it, that can be one of these tiny moments where, but for a little more sleep the night before, your life would be very different.
1: On, On that very point, imagine how many Brits there are today who didn't vote and didn't vote for the most tiny and trivial reasons. They just, oh, I think I'll just have another piece of toast instead. I don't really need to vote. And they're kicking themselves, of course, now. And life has those moments, and we factor that in when we consider what it is to be responsible. And uh, uh, some people... uh, do better on that sort of self-control than others. I think that regret plays a big role in our thinking about free will. When we have done something that we bitterly regret and that we do view as that wasn't really what I, or at least the ideal I, would do when, we, when we're ashamed of something we've done, we often hide behind second-rate ideas. I think that's part of the The sort of emotional distortion, the waves of distortion, that mean that we really can't take, you know, the folk notions at face value. They've got a lot of baggage on
0: them. So yeah, it's interesting. It's seeming to me at this moment that we have been talking past each other to some degree. Uh, So yeah, you decide to redefine free will, here's, here's the free will worth wanting, and then you talk about degrees of freedom and agents that can operate lawfully and meet their aims, whereas I talk about free will being an incoherent concept. The libertarian notion of free will it doesn't map onto determinism, it doesn't ma- map onto indeterminism, and it doesn't map onto any combination thereof. And we both agree about that, but we have a different response to it. But I, I think...
1: What is your response
0: well, my, re- my response is that the free will you think you have doesn't exist, and then, let's, then we can go on to talk about all these other things that we care about, but here's where I'm gonna push into this area of moral responsibility where I, we may find a disagreement. Uh, so you, you take the, the, the classic case of uh, uh, Charles Whitman, the shooter in the clock tower, killing I think 14 people at the University of Texas, and you know, one of the, the, the early and famous mass shootings in American history. And it turns out that he wrote this essentially suicide note saying, I don't know what's wrong with me, but I've been flying into a rage. And he, he killed his wife first before he went and killed all those other people. And he said, I don't know why I did this. I love my wife. You might want to do an autopsy on my brain after you kill me to, to fi- find out what's wrong with me. And in fact, that's what was done. And they found a, I think it was a glioblastoma that was pressing on his amygdala. And it's just the sort of. Tumor in the sort of place where you think, okay, that there's something exculpatory about that, right? He was not; he was a victim of his biology, and he, that wasn't Charles Whitman shooting. That was Charles Whitman plus brain tumor shooting. So when you when that kind of case emerges in court, it affects our ethical notion of what of you know, if he had survived and he, it was time to punish him we would have given him brain surgery had the surgery been available and not put him in prison for the rest of his life because he was he was yet an, another victim of this bad luck incident. Now, my argument in my book, Free Will, which I, I think you don't agree with, is that a complete understanding of neurophysiology, should we ever attain it, is exculpatory in that same sense, that basically it is, it is brain tumors all the way down. So if you can tell me... That you fully understand the charge on, my, on that one synapse that led me to hit send on my email as opposed to restraining myself. That charge is something which I didn't author. That charge is, is the, the tiniest brain tumor ever found. And that is the reason why I hit send.
1: Oh, that's uh, very useful. Um. Tom Wolfe has this passage where he says, what we've learned from neuroscience is that we're wired wrong. Don't blame me, We don't blame us, we're wired wrong. No, what neuroscience shows is we're wired. It doesn't show we're wired wrong. Some people, like poor Whitman, wired wrong. So what you're basically challenging me to say is, well, doesn't that mean that everybody's wired wrong? There's no such thing as being wired right for free will. That, I think, is what you're... Now claiming, you're saying it's 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 brain tumors all the way down. Well, I find that uh, extrapolation completely. Uh, I'm not moved by it at all. I don't. I don't think it is a logical argument. I think it is it is a uh, mistaken extrapolation. It's it's like a mathematical induction gone wrong. Um, the fact that Whitman and and I find it in fact fascinating that this is a very standard argument from the libertarians. They'll take a case of somebody with horrible brain damage uh, and say, well, surely this is a case of so the person isn't, is a victim, as you say, not, not, not an agent. Right. I agree. Well, then, we're all that way. Oh, no, we're not. I mean, the, that's, that's precisely what we, we understand, is that we're not all disabled. Some people... Now, nobody's an angel. Nobody's perfect. So if anything short of perfection counts as being disabled to the point of exculpatorily disabled, then you're right. But that's a very strange view. The idea that you couldn't be able enough to be held responsible is uh, uh, the crux of the issue right now between us. I say that... The boundaries are always porous that as we learn more about neuroscience, as neuroscience teaches us more, we may very well, we probably will, move some people that are now exculpated into the guilty, not excusable category and others will move. But we'll still keep the distinction
0: between those who are basically wired right and those that are wired wrong. So I'm not disputing the fact that people have different capacities, right? So people have different degrees of freedom, and if you have a brain tumor in the wrong place, your capacities can be undermined. So there's nothing that I said thus far that ignores the very important difference between voluntary and involuntary action or the ability to restrain your impulses or, or, as opposed to just acting out everything that uh, arises uh, in your mind as a, at the level of intention. So there are different capacities... But here's the the ethical problem and the the reason why I think more information begins to make every case look more like Charles Whitman, because everything is as it is in a way that no one can take responsibility for. So you you didn't pick your parents, you didn't pick your genes, you didn't pick the environment in which your nervous system was sculpted in response to its inputs. The, The only variables there are in the system are your genes and the way in which they're played upon by the environment and this includes ideas, this includes conversations had and not had so to bring us back to this conversation you are not in control of how persuaded you are or not by what I say so I say something, it either strikes you as stupid or incredibly incisive or somewhere on that continuum and you don't pick that, right? It is entirely dependent on the state of your brain which is entirely dependent on every moment preceding so we are being played by the universe. We are, we are little corners of the universe that are just like the rest of the universe, except for all of these other functions that we can talk about, like voluntary behavior and involuntary behavior, impulse control, et cetera. And there is something exculpatory about that. So again, just to give you a little more information here, you can take the evilest person, the, the, the most easily incriminated person you can think of. Let's see, I think I used Saddam Hussein or one of his sons in my book. I mean, this is the, the the prototypical mustache-twirling evil person. If anyone is responsible for his actions, he is. But if you just just roll back the timeline of his life, I mean, at one point he was the four-year-old who was destined to become Saddam Hussein, right? So you look at that four-year-old, and he might have been—he might have the genes for psychopathy. Say he might have bad parents. He's got a bad society, or, or certainly one that's destined to influence him in ways that predispose him to psychopathic violence. So. You have an unlucky four-year-old. That is fully exculpatory. That four-year-old, if we could help that four-year-old, we would. We would intervene. We would put him into a new family. We'd give him the right drugs if we had them to, to combat his psychopathy, right? And you just roll forward in his life at a certain point, I think, as if by magic, we hold him responsible for being the true author of his actions. And yet, at no point does he actually become the author of his genes and his environment and all of the causal connections. And so I'm saying to you is that, that we, we might want to still hold people responsible. I, I think we do. I think you and I should sign contracts and we should, we should keep promises and we should be held responsible for breaking those promises. But the reason, Why? If, the, if, yeah, if nobody's ever b- because it's pragmatically useful to do that. It, it, punishment makes sense if it actually influences people's behavior in a way that, uh, uh, on balance, leads to human flourishing. So, so I don't think we throw out everything that you're worried we throw out in the criminal justice system, but I think there is something, I think the role of luck goes all the way down.
1: Your um, examples, uh, I think, have a flaw and I'm trying to think of the cleanest way of saying what I think it is. Let's talk about control. One of the things you said is, yeah, you can't control your genes, you can't control your environment, that's right. And as a sailor, I can't control the properties of the water, I can't control the wind, but I can control the boat. I can't control how hard the wind blows, but given how the wind blows, I can control the boat. Now, maybe you couldn't control the boat because you don't know, an, you know about how to control a boat. But I do, and I can control the boat. And, it's, uh, and, and y- your argument is trying to remove the very idea of control from the world. Say nobody ever controls anything, not really. And I think that's a reductio ad absurdum. Of course we control things. And, and for that matter... Um, uh, Uh, an airliner can be controlled by a computer the computer is really controlling it and and if the and if and if the pilot turns off the computer then the pilot is controlling the airplane and the idea that you can't control all the factors that's irrelevant I mean of course you can't that's why that's what control theory starts with the premise that there are factors that are not in your control. The whole point of control is to respond to the factors that are out of your control by, you know, doing the right thing. And the same thing goes for moral education. You're exactly right. Poor Saddam Hussein, terrible beginning and all that. And if we could treat him, we would. Why would we treat him? Because if we treated him, if we could get in there early, we could turn him with some chances of success, and there's good evidence of this, into a, an autonomous, self-controlling adult. That's why we have moral education, and it works. And if, if you don't morally educate your kids, then they're going to be out of control. And if they are, then shame on you as a parent for not doing that moral education, because you could have made them into a self-controlling, autonomous adult. And you, you you let down the side, and it's too bad for them. It's too bad for you. I agree. These are cases where, where, uh, uh, adults are not fully responsible. And I think, again, we we don't need to talk about absolute moral responsibility. Nobody could be absolutely morally responsible, but you can be non-absolutely practically responsible. For who you are. After all, you make a robot. You made it. You thought about it. You sent it out. It's your artifact. And it kills somebody. Who's responsible? You are. You made it. You should have known better. All right. You, 20-year-old you, made 21-year-old you, which made 28-year-old you, which made 40-year-old you. We do part of being an adult is recognizing that part of our responsibility to the rest of the world is to make a is to keep ourselves as self-controlling autonomous agents not to lapse into we have a responsibility, we have a duty to maintain ourselves as self-controllers some people fail miserably and it's very interesting that We've had a sea change in the way the public thinks about this. When I was a kid, drunk drivers were routinely excused because, oh, poor Sam, he was drunk out of his mind. He wasn't responsible. Now we hold him doubly responsible, and we hold the bartender and and his friends responsible for letting him get in that state. And I think the same thing, I I think that's a wise change. And I think that's something we don't want to give up. We want to keep the idea that part of getting a moral education is inculcating in an individual the goal, the motive, to become a reliable self-controller. And most people succeed pretty darn well. They're not perfect, and what you get for that is for the freedom of the state. You get to drive a car, run around and sign contracts and live a life and you're allowed to have a free, politically free life. And if you can't do that, you're in the soup and you're going to you're going to suffer.
0: Well, again, I agree there is this practical distinction and an important one between people we can we can treat as responsible agents who can be- behave themselves and people who are you know wild and unpredictable and uh, can't be influenced by reasons and and our expectations etc so uh, there's you know an obvious difference between toddlers and older kids and older and adolescents and adults and we we understand a fair amount about the, the physical basis of of those differences but this is something actually that came up in my response to your review which i had never thought of before and it's just something i haven't thought about deeply but it seems to me ethically interesting where you you brought up Austin's putt and you, you brought it up as a an example of how you really don't want to think about free will and in my review or in my response to your review I owned it as oh, this is actually is in line with how I do want to think about free will and one thing that came out of Austin's putt for me is what strikes me as a bit of a paradox is so you take the most competent agent so you take you know Tiger Woods or Tiger Woods as he used to be putting Tiger Woods, in his prime, attempting to sink a two-foot putt. Now, this is a putt that he will make 999 times out of 1,000, I would think, at least. So when he misses this putt, we're now the, on the one occasion where he misses it, on its face, he is the person you can hold most responsible on earth for missing this putt. So, because, because if I miss the putt, you, know, you don't, you'd expect me to miss it 20% of the time, right? Because I'm not a good golfer. So I am less culpable than he is. He is the most culpable of any person on earth for missing this putt. And yet his missing the putt says the least about him because he's someone who always makes this putt. So the role of luck here, the role of just just the mere, you know, cosmic ray bombardment of his synapses seems the most salient because for Tiger Woods to miss a two-foot putt, that is just bad luck. That's not That's not the Tiger Woods we know, and that's not the Tiger Woods he knows. And his subjective experience of, of missing the putt will be, presumably, I don't know what the hell happened because I should have made that putt, and I would make that putt. I'll make that putt watch. I'll make it a thousand times in a row now. So the paradox I want to, and I wish I had a name for this paradox, but the paradox is in a case where you have a lapse in behavior, and I, I would argue even a moral lapse, even a crime committed, right, by someone who should be the absolute best candidate for responsible self-governance in that instance, it suddenly becomes the least good case for freedom of will.
1: That's, I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to raise that too. Um, the reason... Let's take a moral case, a moral Tiger Woods case. There's a, reason why, there's a reason why we expect the best from some and not from others, and we're, we're more condemnatory if the Supreme Court justice shoplifts or something like that than if somebody, some poor kid in the neighborhood does. Um, I don't think there's any paradox. I think that there's no paradox because the Supreme Court Justice or any serious moral agent has taken on, in effect, the obligation to be that good. People are counting on him. People are making... Plans that could be life-wrecking if he doesn't come through. They're not doing that with everybody. They're doing it with the ones that have the particular competence and advertise that particular competence so that it is particularly bad when they don't live up to their own self-advertisement. And you say it's just luck. Well, it may be just luck or they may look in their hearts and think, well, I don't know where the just like there's always luck, randomness, or pseudo-randomness, chaos infects every moment of our lives. But very often there are other factors that we can point to if we go looking. So maybe Tiger Woods shouldn't have stayed out so late last night. And he may realize that. And he may say, I can't imagine how I missed that, but oh, he can indeed. And he will think it through very carefully, and he will try to improve his, his mental game the next day. Uh, you see, I don't, I don't think the case is as simple as you make it out to be. I don't think there's any paradox there at all.
0: Well, I, th- I think you're not connecting with the, the first-person side of what it's like to deviate from your own internalized norms and competencies. So you're the Supreme Court justice, right, who's just fully committed to ethics and law, the rule of law, and then all of a sudden you find that you've gone on a shoplifting spree, right? That is so unreflective of who you've been. That is a failure of, of some part of your system, which seems the most adventitious. It says it says uh, the, the, the least about who you've been up until that moment. It is a departure from the norm. And as it is with, you know, Tiger Woods missing a putt that even a terrible golfer would would make some significant percentage of the time, going back to prior causes doesn't really resolve the issue. So if you if you ask, you know, why did he stay out late the, the night before, well then we're we're back to him not authoring himself because the explanation for why he decided to stay out late was because he happened to see that pretty woman across the bar. If he hadn't seen her, he would've been in bed by 10, but because he's a serial philanderer, he had to stay out till four. This is all relevant. But I'm just saying that each one of those moments becomes a missed putt when you look closely at it. So one thing I hear here, and one thing I've definitely detected in, in your writing about this is, you're very concerned about these social, the societal implications of most people getting the wrong message about free will. So if, if Jerry Coyne and I won the argument here and we just announced that free will is an illusion and in some sense everyone is not guilty by reason of insanity, There's no, there is no control that's good enough for free will. No one has that kind of control. Everyone is just part of the universe. Everyone is a force of nature. Everyone is a wild animal. Something very important would be lost. And well, the truth. But what I'm saying is that you can conserve—I have a compatibilist maneuver for many of the things you're afraid would be lost. So, so holding people accountable, holding people to their contracts, their promises, putting people in prison who are too scary to let out of prison. I think we can do all of that in a way that doesn't preserve an illusion that anyone actually truly authors themselves any more than Charles Whitman did with his brain tumor.
1: Nobody ever actually, truly, absolutely authors himself or herself. But that doesn't mean there aren't people that author themselves. They use found objects that they find. (laughs) You know, do it yourself. Um, There's a limit to do it yourself. Uh, And indeed, there's a lot of luck involved. And I think that... um, people understand this people understand that the best game in town is to be a moral agent who lives by the community's ideas of moral agency and takes punishment gracefully when it's deserved and may secretly harbor things like thoughts like well I was just really unlucky today. I was just really, really unlucky. Tough. I was really unlucky. But the last thing I'm going to do is plead I'm just cosmically unlucky, Your Honor. Yeah, okay, so what? You did it. You hold yourself, you declare yourself to be a responsible agent. On this occasion, you let down the side. And it's quite irrelevant whether
0: you were unlucky today. But say so again, I think the the subject there changes to the pragmatics of holding people responsible and how our courts function and how our relationships need to be. But again, I just think it's this is vulnerable to more information. So, so Tiger Woods is misput. Let's say we had full knowledge of all of the variables, right? So we find that actually it was the chirp of a bird that got into his head that, you know, his auditory cortex did its little dance and that was enough to get him to miss this putt. The game of golf wouldn't necessarily change because there is no way to incorporate the, the, the influence of birds into the rules of the game. So, it's just, so what golf would have to say at that point is, listen, sometimes you get lucky and sometimes you don't get lucky with the birds, right? But we, we're not going to kill all the birds, so just deal with it. But that is a pragmatic response to a situation that's that's just too complex and yet it is still a fact that the bird caused him to miss that putt and he's not actually responsible. We're we're just using a heuristic here to, to hold him responsible. He's responsible in the sense that next time we will expect him to make that putt rightfully based on his skill and he probably will make it.
1: Well, you're, you're covertly sliding back into absolute responsibility. Right, he's, he's not absolutely responsible because the bird played an unexpected causal role in this case. But, but as long as you're not holding out for absolute responsibility, um, he's still responsible. And you say this is just pragmatic. Well, the whole idea of free will is ultimately, I think pragmatic. That's, we're going to have a consequentialist account of why we, why we hold people responsible. And it's actually, it's not a simple deterrence and rehabilitation idea. It's the idea that if we have a, if we want to have a secure society where there's respect for law, then the law has to be reasonable because we're pretty reasonable people. And unreasonable laws will not be respected. So the law has built into it lots of excusing conditions, but it says not everything is an excuse. We draw the line here. Now, where do we draw that line? We draw it somewhere, and it's not a metaphysical line. It's a pragmatic line. And what determines where that line is is something about what human nature is like in general, and setting it higher would excuse too many people and, and would lead to disrespect for the law. Setting it lower would be too punitive on people that we intuitively feel were really not that responsible for what they did. And so we, we have this artifact, this wonderful human artifact, which is law and order, and it's a human. Well, it's not. It was not intelligently designed so much by, by humans, so much as it evolved by cultural evolution to be a, a system which people can appreciate its value, even if they can't entirely explain how the working parts work and why they're as good as they are.
0: So, so take the the prototypical psychopath, right? So, the, the, yeah. the, an evil person who is as responsible for his evil. Yeah. As possible because he's a, he's a sadist he gets pleasure from it he, he you know he's, he's now in prison but you know, he says if we let him out he would do it again because what he really likes to do is kill little girls and boys and he has no regrets this is as culpable a person as we're ever going to find but no. you well he is in the sense that he's he's not Charles Whitman saying I don't know what came over me he's saying this is who I want to be you know you, you can tell you can talk about neurophysiology all you want. I'm happy to be who I am, right? I love this, and this is how I want to live. So you might have some reason to think that he's not as responsible as you and I are, but I think this would push most people's buttons in terms of judging him to be the author of his evil as much as anyone's the author of anything. This guy is satisfied to be who he is, and he is just a violent, sadistic person who we we should lock up. Now, if we had a cure for this condition. Let's call it psychopathy, but maybe this is something beyond that. And we could just give him the pill that made him have the epiphany oh my God, I can't believe I was this evil bastard. I'm so regretful. I'm so sorry for everything I've done. I want to spend the rest of my life making it up to you people. We would rather than punish him in a retributive scheme and just let him rot away in prison for the rest of his life, we would have a name for this condition that we now call evil, but let's say it's called Psychopathy Plus, and we would just give this pill to all the people who are at risk for being this sort of evil person. In the same way we give insulin to diabetics, we would just view these people who, for whatever reason, genes and environment, were destined to become these evil bastards, we would give them the anti-evil pill. And wouldn't that be, in some sense, exculpatory?
1: Um... Yes, it would, but I want to look at a a case which which I think is better. Um, um, Not a psychopathic torturer, but um, a, a Bernie Madoff. A calm, calculating, greedy, heartless, fraudulent person with fine education, no, good upbringing, and no
0: clear signs of any uh, pathology, psychopathology. I, I think that's the same case, it's just he's a more normal person. But I'm going to invent something now, it's called Madoff syndrome. It's the kind of person who, even with the benefit of an education and a great upbringing and good relationships and all of the right environmental influences, he still is malignantly selfish enough to show up like Bernie Madoff. He can lie to people with alacrity and he can pursue his own aims. He has a kind of time horizon for his gratification, which allows him to forget about the fact that he's running a Ponzi scheme that is guaranteed to blow up. And he's 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 really not motivated by that. He's discounted that future pain to the point where he's no longer motivated by it. So if we could completely understand the neurophysiology of what it was to be Bernie Madoff, and just by dint of luck, there was a intervention that could cancel it. There's now a pill that is the anti-Madoff pill. That maybe it's just a designer pill just for Bernie Madoff. Maybe it would work for no one else, but it'll work for him. And you give it to him, and he becomes as regretful as you'd ever want him to be and no longer capable of that behavior. He says, I cannot believe who I was. I, watched this, I just watched that documentary about me, and I, I do not recognize that guy. It seems to be the same case to me. Um. But you're leaving out a lot of the recursive
1: cycles of the whole situation. If we had a Madoff pill, then people would know there was a Madoff pill. And so a lot of people who knew that they could do this until they had to take the Madoff pill would, would factor that in to their behavior. and so. Let me, let me, let me... No, I don't think it is. I think, I think it's important to not to shield off the calculations of all the effects on respect for the law and the sense people have of, about the security that respect for the law gives them. You have to factor that all in. And the fact that there's a Madoff syndrome doesn't change that. And it's small comfort to the rest of the citizenry that when we diagnose a Madoff syndrome case we give him the pill and then he's better not good enough we want to have the threat of punishment there so that the people that have Madoff syndrome behave themselves now consider in this light most psychopaths never commit a crime why? they're deterred by the penalties and here's where my homely comparison with penalties in sports comes in you want to play football, soccer you want to have a yellow card and a red card and you want to use them sparingly but when you use them you want to mean them and it's going to hurt and they're real penalties and would the game be better without them? no do we even stop to ask whether the players could control themselves better? No. If you want to play soccer, you're going to live by these rules and don't even think about coming up and saying, "Oh, not me. I'm a hot-headed Latin type who can't control his emotions." Tough. You play by the rules or you get your or you get your red card. And This is an enabler for a pastime that many people enjoy and think is a pretty good thing, football. You can't play football without rules, and you can't play football without rules that have penalties. And those penalties are not just... It's not for rehabilitation, and it's not just to deter that individual in the future. It is to preserve the common, mutual knowledge of what to expect on the pitch. And that's the way the law works in general. There's the implacability of the law is a very interesting feature, because it means that, say, judges are often put in a position of wanting to temper justice with mercy. And they often do. But there must not be a law that says, and, by the way, judges, under various circumstances, you ought to temper justice with mercy. That subverts the law. It subverts the, the respect for the law, which is one of, its, one of its main features. And I think if you look at it in terms of the rules of the game, or law and order, criminal behavior, then you can see that that simply heightens or clarifies the situation in all moral behavior. Holding people responsible, there is this curious, uh, you might think it's paradoxical, I don't think it is, that we don't want people to count on the mercy of their judges. We want them to be grateful when they get mercy.
0: Well, again, I I think we're having two conversations here. There's two topics in play, and we're not necessarily noticing when we're bouncing between them. So there there are just the practical constraints of... Jurisprudence or the criminal justice system or the world as we currently understand it, and we have to we have to figure out how to function in it. we have to figure out how to play the game in a way that makes sense so I, I, I fully agree that punishment makes sense if it deters any significant number of people from crimes and even in a state of total information, we may still want to reserve certain punishments because that that's, it just those are the best levers to pull in terms of influencing human behavior but then, then there 's just the ethical case and what is true of the world and and how those two interact. And I think, just to go back to Madoff for a second, if we understood Madoff syndrome and this was a real condition which could be easily cured and families who were aware of Madoff syndrome were giving their teenage boys the Madoff pill before they went to business school... uh, Why would they bother? Well, because it's gross negligence otherwise. It's like strapping your child into a, a seatbelt when it's your, as a parent, it's your responsibility to do that. You're, you're unleashing your Madoff-prone children on the rest of society if, if you don't give them this pill. It's not optional. Well, everything's optional. You could starve your kids to death, but then we, then society will hold you responsible for that. What I'm saying is that because we don't understand Madoff syndrome and we have no cure for it, Madoff looks like a fully culpable moral actor who just belongs behind bars but if the state of our knowledge of his condition changed radically and there was a way to intervene it would begin to look like neurosurgery for Charles Whitman just a different case of it and i'm saying that on some level everything becomes like that it will from tiger woods's putt to your reaction to my making this point i'm making this point and you are underwhelmed right that is a state of your brain which we dimly understand but it's not one that you are responsible for you as the center of your subjective life and this is this to now to connect this conversation back to where, where i think the illusion of free will or the sense of free will is really the motivating force on this topic for everyone if we connected you to the right brain scanning technique of the future and we could know in advance everything you were going to think and do before you subjectively could, right? So you are, you are, you're about to utter something which we have in the lab already transcribed. To be confronted with that precognitive record of your behavior moment after moment would be fundamentally undermining of people's felt sense of what they are as agents. If the guy with the white coat knows what you're going to do before you're going to do it, from my point of view, we have every reason to believe that is a neurological fact about us. You are not the first to know what you're about to think and do. If we can get a hold of your neurophysiology in any real detail, well then that will completely shatter this sense for people that they are the authors of their actions. And it brings us back to the, the, the psychological case for free will, not the pragmatics of it, not the this is how you have to design a game so that it's fun or that, so that it's order layer, or so that we know what to expect. It's this is who people feel they are in each moment.
1: Sam, I think you're just wrong about the, the effect. The yeah, I think so. Um, uh, we have to look more closely. And here's where actually... Uh, uh, a what looks like a empirical but boring detail matters. Uh, some people think that the difference between prediction in real time and prediction about the discovery of things that happened in the past uh, that the difference between them is important to science. It really isn't. People sometimes say that you know you, there's no predictive power to um, evolutionary biology. No, there's plenty. Um, for instance, I predict that if we go to any island <laughs> in the world and start examining the birds there, we can say a lot about what their DNA is going to show us. <laughs> it's, it's not predicting the future in any interesting sense uh, or predicting that we'll find certain fossils in the ground. It's about the past, but it's... So what happens in neuroscience right now, for instance, in the soon and at and, uh, all experiments and... Um, Patrick Haggard's experiments. That's not real-time prediction. They have to massage that data with a a number crunching program for quite a while in order to generate the so-called prediction, which they then check against what the person actually did. They get it right, you know, 60, 80% of the time, but they can't predict in real time. If they could, then of course they could make real money by playing rock, paper, and scissors
0: with the person with their head in the scanner. They can't do that, but suppose they could. But I mean, that's just a a technological wrinkle. There's no reason to think they couldn't. But let let me just ask you one question to sharpen this up, which I think will make it clearer. If I showed you my phone now and I had a transcript of everything we said in this conversation, right? So I knew in advance everything you were going to say. I knew what I was going to say. I knew what you were going to say, down to, to every syllable. And on some level... We know that's true of us. The perfect mind-reading instrument would get it a few... Uh, you know, uh, 500 milliseconds early, right? Before you have a sense of even how you're going to form the word. That's the undermining case. And I think there's just... As a matter of determinism and indeterminism, however you want to knit those together at the level of cells, we know that's true of us. Consciousness just does not get involved early enough for us to feel like it's we're pushing the river.
1: Um, I think there's two confusions in that. One of them is that your example has, it's sort of irrelevant, but it's, since you trotted out the example, many years ago, Donald Mackay, D.M. Mackay, showed that, as it were, a Laplacian demon can't predict uh, your behavior if he's going to interact with you because then he's got to predict his own behavior too and to do that he's going to have to have a complete description of himself which you can't have as turing showed so there there is a theoretical limit to how good that you know if, if if your phone had the whole transcript uh on it then i guess what it would show is that
0: Make it a conversation with somebody
1: else. Well, so, well we'd, have to, we'd have to be very careful how we wrote that. But I, you say that you think that would really undermine the idea that we had free will. I think it really depends on the details of the context. Let me, let me uh, build up with a simple case. You give me two simple arithmetic problems to do, I do them. I hand you the result, and you say, ta-da, and you show a piece of paper. You've written down the very results that I've written down. No, that doesn't cut any ice, because it's sort of obvious. And, you know, I'm pretty good at arithmetic. You predicted I'd get the answers right. I did. Now, if you ask me, you know, to write a poem, I sit down to write a poem, and when I hand it to you, you take out a uh, you know a piece of paper and show that you've, you've got the, uh, you know, the same poem has already been written, has already been written down on the piece of paper. Well, what I'll be sure is that you played a magic trick of some sort on me. Uh, but uh, yeah, that would be, yeah, that would be very, very unnerving, because I believe, and believe for good reason, that the sort of complexity of the uh, cycles going on in my brain are such that uh, it is
0: beyond feasibility to be able to make that kind of prediction. But even just 500 milliseconds in advance, so if we had the poem reading technology hooked up to your brain and we got the poem, we got each word of the poem half a second before you got it and we could prove that to you, isn't that the same case?
1: No, I don't think it really is. First of all, let let me just... I don't want to get into a lot of science fictional... Imaginings about very, very extreme and physically dubious possibilities in principle. So let's sort of set that aside. I think we should. But if you want to go back to it, we can. The idea that a conscious author has to be conscious of the creative process that generates each word that's an extraordinarily extreme and unlikely view of authorship. And if we look at history we see that Mozart and other great artists they say no it's not like that at all. You know these Mozart says the, uh, these tunes come to me and I write them down. So but he, he he claims authorship for him and so he should. Why should he? Well because no nobody else wrote them and they were processes in his brain and he controls them. To some degree. He controls them not at the micro level. He controls them at a temporally macro level. Thus, when uh, when Venus Williams returns service, she's got to put that stroke in motion before it's fully reached full consciousness. I don't like that way of, of speaking, but she's got to, uh, you know couple hundred less than a couple hundred milliseconds to shape her response as she's waiting for the serve she's making conditional plans and those are in, those are deliberate she's already she's decided that if if she can she's setting up to do to do a backhand lob down down the lane and she's not deluded in thinking when that when she gets the serve she was expecting and does that 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 she planned that. But, but the fact that her response happened so fast doesn't show that, she, that this was not a conscious act of hers. I picked this up in your book, and I thought it was one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, too, because I think you had a an unrealistic demand on what a, a conscious decision or a conscious bit of authorship would be. Musicians, let's take jazz improvisation, on the piano. So uh, I'm playing around midnight and I've decided the next chorus, I'm not quite sure why, but I'm going to up the tempo. Unusual in that piece, but I'm going gonna, gonna to try it fast. Now, do I know exactly which notes are going to come out when? No. In fact, I know what I'll be doing is setting in Motion some control circuits that I can't control directly, but I've honed them I've I've practiced things like this they may be bad musical habits but they're my habits and I know how to get a characteristic Dennett cliche <laughs> to come out of my fingers at that moment I'm the author of that but I'm not I, you seem to be holding out for a kind of authorship that would that would d- deny that that was authorship.
0: I think there is this shift between first and third person views of free will. And I, I think the first person is primary in terms of describing what people think they're gonna lose psychologically when they give up this notion of free will. And I think they lose it to some significant degree under your compatibilism. Because we both repudiate libertarian free will. We both the, 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 I could have done otherwise, you think it's just not important, and it's untrue. I think if most people think it's important, and it's untrue. And so that we're, we're playing a slightly different game there. But the punchline is the same from both of us. No, you couldn't have done otherwise.
1: Um, I have to demur slightly. I think there's a perfectly good sense of could have done otherwise. Well, yes, you could have done otherwise. In that you 're competent to do a range of things, you have that degree of freedom on this on this particular occasion, you did one thing, but you could have done the other. It might be just the flip of a bit that makes a difference. That is a perfectly legitimate sense of could have done otherwise because the only reason you 're ruling it out is because you 're going for absolute uh, atom for atom physical. A replication, But that just is irrelevant to the real world of causation.
0: Well, I would say that what you're actually promising there is not that they could have done otherwise, but that they can do otherwise next time. So, so like to bring it back to Tiger Woods' putt, Tiger Woods couldn't do otherwise because the bird caused him to miss the putt or a glitch in his nervous system caused him to miss the putt. And he's if you return the universe to that state exactly, he's going to miss that putt a trillion times in a row but he can do otherwise in the sense that he can be expected to make his next putt because it's within his range of competency to do that.
1: There's a paper that Kit Taylor and I wrote together called Who's Afraid of Determinism? And in it, we argue that uh, this is a common confusion about determinism, that uh, this idea of rolling the tape back and playing it exactly the same way Um, Let's take our sort of canonical example of a random event, a coin flip with a fair coin. Well, it's not actually random. It's determined, but it's determined by the position of every particle in the visible universe. But so what? It could have been otherwise. That's what we mean when we say that we use coin flips to... Implement could have done otherwise when we need it. And that's a perfectly legitimate sense of could have done otherwise. Even though determinism reigns. The coins coming up heads is, in an important sense, uncaused. It's determined by the whole state of the universe at that moment. But it has no more salient cause. Now, if you make a coin flipper, that is, you know, balanced in a mercury bath and has very carefully calibrated arms and you put a coin and flip it and you you can probably make a device which will flip it a thousand times and it'll always come up heads. Then those aren't random. And those are caused. Now, we can contrast cases like that with cases where they are random. All without touching determinism. It's a deterministic world some coin tosses are random and some aren't. The ones that are random could have been otherwise.
0: Well, it, well, in that case, a a coin flip is a surrogate for true randomness. It's it's. I mean, we're, we're talking about a chaotic system where you you can't predict the outcome because you don't know the uh, the initial conditions, and you couldn't do the math even if you did. But it's a prosaic version of randomness. If I want to randomize a decision, I'm going to flip a coin and take the outcome. The issue is psychologically. And again, you and I agree that people don't have this freedom. I just think people put a lot of stock in the illusion that they do. And, and uh, you, might, you and I might disagree about this. People can't own the micro causes and they can't, they can't go all the way upstream and be the author of their actions. And I am making a unrealistic demand on their subjectivity. They, no one has ever had this kind of control or this kind of ownership of their actions. But the, the felt sense of libertarian free will does presume it. And if if I, I would say to you that if, if something like this neuroimaging experiment we talked about were available, people would find it a total challenge to their sense of their authorship of their poem, or their authorship of their music, or their authorship of their volitional action if everything could be predicted prior to their conscious awareness of any of the relevant elements. If before you heard the sentence in your mind to speak, or before you, you, know, you, you, you thought for an hour about which word you were going to choose here, and I can show you that that at every point you thought you were deciding several seconds earlier, we knew what your brain was going to do, that gives you the marionette feeling even if those strings are attached only to the universe and of causality not to the hands of some other person
1: well it would take quite a while for me to unpack everything in there but i do want to disagree um i want to suggest that when you say well the coin flip that's just a surrogate for real randomness you're you're making that move again that's That's not real free will or that's not real consciousness. That's just a cheap substitute. Well, no, in fact, it's not a cheap substitute. The difference between the way the world runs if we've merely got deterministic chaos and the way it runs if we have quantum
0: indeterminacy
1: makes no moral difference at all.
0: I wasn't saying that it makes a moral difference. I was just distinguishing between those two as physical facts.
1: Well... But then, if it doesn't make a moral difference, people are simply deluded if they think it does. Yeah. So, in other words, people are deluded to think they need what you call what you call free will. They don't. they can be they can have the kinds of free will worth wanting are perfectly compatible with determinism.
0: We completely agree about that. So th- this might be a good point to end on because you and- dinner is calling and uh, our brains are inclining toward it through perhaps no free will of our own. But I just want to say I'm I'm very happy that we had this conversation in the spirit of collegiality that I hope all of our conversations would happen in. And because you and I, uh, being the control systems that we are, we're up to the task uh, in most contexts. And so I I just want to say that if there was any point in that exchange, the written exchange, on this topic that offended you, that made me seem less of a reliable ally for you or a friend, I regret that, and it's been a a great pleasure to uh, collaborate with you in all the ways that we have thus far, and I'm very happy we had this conversation.
1: And I'll echo the same sentiment back to you. This has been instructive for both of us, I think.
0: If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. Or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content which includes my Ask Me Anything episodes. You also get access to advanced tickets to my live events, as well as streaming video of some of these events. And you also get to hear the bonus questions from many of these interviews. All of these things and more you'll find on my website at samharris.org. Thank you for your support of the show. It's listeners like you that make all of this possible.